You're listening to Design Tomorrow. This sound is a little piece of tech history. Little because it's really more a piece of my own personal tech history. It's the sound of my very first cell phone. That also makes it a 20-year-old sound, so... Yeah, it's historical. My first cell phone was the Qualcomm QCP860, which I got the summer after my freshman year of college. I remember opening the box and plugging it in to charge right away. The instructions on this were very clear. I needed to fully charge that battery before using the phone, otherwise I would never get what Qualcomm promised. Two and a half hours of talk time. Now, two and a half hours of use seemed like way more than enough back then because, let's face it, I wasn't going to do anything else with this phone than talk on it. A huge selling point for the 860 was that you could store 99 phone numbers on it. 99? I mean, at the time, I would have said, who knows 99 people? But in today's social media world where knowing someone or being friends with someone means something totally different than it used to, I can simply rephrase that sentiment. Who has 99 people that they'd want to call on the phone? I certainly didn't. But suddenly, I could call the handful of people I would otherwise have called from a landline or a payphone any time I wanted from anywhere I wanted. It may sound quaint to marvel at that. But Marvel, I did. So let's jump ahead four years later, when I got my second cell phone. I had just graduated from college, and so I went right out and signed up for my own wireless plan with Singular. And they threw in a phone. The Siemens C56. And I loved this thing right away. First of all, it was tiny. I mean, tiny, tiny. Now, the Qualcomm phone I'd just retired was sub-branded as the Thin Phone, which it was for the time. It was just over half an inch thick, but it was also five and a half inches long. I probably kept it in such good shape because I hardly took it anywhere. This new Siemens phone, which I started calling my Egg, was just a tiny bit thicker, but otherwise much smaller. Just four inches long by about one and a half inches wide. Now, I know that probably doesn't sound that small, But just to put it in perspective, look down at your phone. You've probably got one about the size of the one I have, somewhere in the neighborhood of five and a half inches long by two and three quarter inches wide. That's about the average smartphone size right now, and more than twice as big as that old Siemens phone. If you've got something like the iPhone XS Max, you've got a phone more than three times as big. Seriously, you could almost Tetris 3 of that old Siemens phone on the surface of an XS Max. Anyway, you get the idea. Phones were cute and small back in the day. You could have one in your pocket, and no one would know. The thing is, I didn't get a new phone because it was smaller, even though that was a thing back then. Smaller actually was better. Besides the size, the specs on my phone also weren't so much better than my previous phone to make them a reason to get it. Sure, I could store more than double the phone numbers, and there were new ringtones, and talk time had also doubled, but none of this mattered to me. The main reason I started using this phone was I had to. 
As a newly emancipated college graduate, I needed to get my own cell phone plan, and no one was going to let me hop on their network with my old Qualcomm. This was the time when the carrier gave away phones. So, new plan, new phone. And you know how many more times I followed that pattern? Probably about six or seven. Because it got to the point where every couple of years you'd be eligible for a phone upgrade if you renewed your cell phone plan. That is a lot of phones. And meanwhile, the industry making the phones and the software on those phones were pushing out new versions constantly. The past couple of decades has felt like a game of technological Pac-Man. Consume or die. What if things were different? What if your phone, the one you're using right now, was your last phone? Take a good look at it and imagine using it for the rest of your life. Could it even last that long? Maybe the more provocative question is, could you? The answer is no, on both counts. The company that made your phone is betting on your boredom, envy, or privilege-enabled curiosity kicking in pretty quickly, even before the phone itself gives out. And for those of you who would be perfectly happy buying one phone and using it for the foreseeable future, well, there's just not a whole lot of it to foresee. They've made sure that your phone won't last longer than the successor they're designing right now and hoping to sell you next month. One way or another, whether your battery eventually degrades, given the 20% hit it takes every 500 charges, or the motherboard just can't take another day of heat, or let's be honest, you shatter the screen on the bathroom floor, you'll be buying a new one sometime over the next handful of years. Probably sooner. Today, I want to think about what that means. What happens to a planet and its people when technological progress is measured in product cycles? And what happens when there's no balance sheet to account for the other side of that? When every new product leaves billions of products and accessories and packaging behind? Can we really call it progress? when it creates so much waste. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler. Stay tuned. Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter, at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website, at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me, at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show.
We started this episode with a single sound, and so we'll start here with another. This is the other side of technological progress. What you're hearing is the sound of burning waste at Agboglashi, a scrapyard in Ghana. It's considered one of the most toxic places on the planet, like on a very short list with places like Chernobyl. People live here, spending their lives scavenging and breaking down electronic waste so they can sell the precious metals like copper and aluminum found in circuit boards and wires. The rest, they burn. Eight years ago, worldwide mobile phone production was around 500 million units. Six years ago, it was double that. Today, there are significantly more phones in use than there are living human beings. That is a staggering number, but a number that is truly terrifying is one that is at the moment unspecified. It's the number of mobile phones that have ever existed. The ones like my first cell phone that aren't in use anymore and are still here somewhere, tucked in a drawer, absorbed by soil, consumed by an animal burned and evaporated in our atmosphere, and then rained back down upon us. What we do know is that in 2014, the world produced 42 million tons of electronic waste just that one year. That's 115 times the Empire State Building. That's seven times the weight of the pyramid at Giza. Now, most electronic devices can be carefully broken down, and much of them can be recycled, but they're not. Most of them are buried, burned, or broken down by acid baths, and typically, a person is nearby when that's happening. Their body exposed to toxic fumes and smoke. The miles and miles of waste dumped at Agbogblashi leak lead, mercury, arsenic, zinc, and flame retardants into the surrounding environment, thoroughly poisoning the ecosystem. We don't need a years-long study to conclude what we already know, that no one's body should be made a toxins filter for scavenged e-waste, that no one should spend a life living in a burning wasteland just in the hopes of pulling enough copper out of a melted phone to buy them another day's bread. I mean, you can guess by just mere looking at it that about 70% of the people who are impacted by these waste activities are, are women and children. They, they are in the majority of people who come here. Some really have nothing to do with the e-waste, but we must begin to think more carefully so that one day Another generation will not rise up and say it is the West that have killed developing countries. Situations like this must not be allowed to continue. He's right, but it's also a profound understatement. When it comes to the cost of consumption, we don't have the luxury of thinking of one day as if it's sometime far off in the distant future. Agbogblashi may not be in my backyard, but it's the literal backyard of millions of people who are just as entitled to a better way of life as anyone living on this planet. And meanwhile, the combined millions of tons of copper, iron, gold, silver, and aluminum that can be recycled from e-waste could be the catalyst of a much more functional, worldwide recycling system that safely employs many people. 
And while we're thinking about recycling, let's relocate. I want to show you something else. We're now thousands of miles away, floating in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Now we're on a boat, of course, but for the moment, picture yourself floating on a raft made of plastic. Except your raft isn't a neat machine-made vessel, it's a haphazard mess. Sheets, buckets, bottles, but also countless small bits of it all stuck together by wood pulp and chemical sludge. What you're floating on is just a tiny piece of what's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. You've probably heard about this before, but if you're like me, you probably imagined something more like what you'd see at any local beach. A dense collection of those recognizable things you'd expect to see in a recycling bin bobbing along in the water. Except in this case, just a whole lot more. For some reason, I always imagine a bright red Tide bottle floating by, or one of those foam noodles you'd play with at the pool. But as it turns out, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is much more spread and diffuse than that. So much so that you can't even see it in satellite imagery. Nevertheless, it's still a very big, very dense environmental mess. To understand that, you have to get a little familiar with the numbers. See, this patch is spread over hundreds of thousands of square miles. That alone is hard to imagine. But it's also made up of tens of thousands of tons of plastic, an estimated 1.8 trillion individual pieces. Now here's the interesting part. 92% of the garbage patch's mass comes from objects larger than half a centimeter, so something you can easily see. But 94% of the total number of objects in the patch are microplastics, as in something less than five millimeters in length. At that size, any object is liable to find its way just about anywhere, including inside another organism. Now that, that's the sound of an albatross. As a case in point, there are 1.5 million albatrosses living near the patch, and biologists estimate that 100% of them, each and every one, have plastic in their gastrointestinal tract. Their offspring have a 30% mortality rate, largely because they're fed plastic by their parents. Now here's a U.S. fish and wildlife official touring an albatross habitat on the shoreline with a 60 Minutes reporter in tow. Of the birds that you end up looking at, Mm -hmm. dissecting, what percentage of them have plastics in them? Every single bird has plastic in it. Every bird, yes. Now what she's describing is all at the visible level. Zoom in a bit and you'll see that these microplastics absorb organic pollutants like DDT, which then create toxic conditions and disrupt hormonal balances within the bodies of the animals that unwittingly consume them. Those conditions spread through the food chain all the way up to us. When we eat the fish that ate the jellyfish, that ate the crab, that ate the plankton. So what do we do? Well, it might seem like recycling is the answer. The problem is that we're actually not that good at recycling. Plastic especially is hard to recycle. To properly collect it, break it down, and reuse it costs a lot. Way more than just making new plastic. 
which is the calculus of any company or country weighing their options when it comes to what to do with their waste. That's why waste is so often sold from one country to another. But that's not recycling. That's just kicking the can. Or, in this case, kicking the Tide bottle. That is why the Pacific Garbage Patch is still growing. In fact, it's grown by 10 times every decade since 1945. Oh, And a recent study concluded that of the 9.1 billion tons of plastic produced since 1950, only about 20% of it is still in use. Of the 7-ish billion tons of plastic that is no longer used, only 9% of it was recycled, 12% of it was burned. And so the remaining 5.5 billion tons of plastic is either in the ocean or buried somewhere in a landfill like Agbogblashi. We started this journey with a mobile phone. And while it might seem like the distance between your phone and the Pacific Garbage Patch is pretty long, like literally thousands of miles, it's just not. Something you've touched and used and valued is floating out there. That's a guarantee. And as abstract as microplastics are in comparison with mobile phones, microplastics come from mobile phones. We're caught up in a consumption cycle that treats pocket-sized computers like to-go containers in that they're both designed to be held for a little while and then spend eternity buried in a landfill or floating in the ocean or burning in Africa. It's as reckless and wantonly wasteful as it sounds. But according to the billion-dollar industries that sit atop that cycle, it's perfectly normal. Progress, even. If by progress they mean keeping the hamster wheel spinning or that there's a thing that came after another thing, or screw it, that we're progressing toward the day when everyone lives on islands of plastic, then yay, progress. But boy, does that leave us all with a sickening number of notches on our consumption headboard. Not to mention a sickening feeling within our bodies as their plastic content increases at the microscopic level. And as easy as it is to blame the big companies, we are all a part of it. I've tried plenty of times to recall the full list of mobile phones that I've ever owned, and I'm ashamed to admit that I actually can't. Nor can I tell you where all of them are today, so it's only fair to assume that they're buried in a landfill, or floating in the ocean, or burning in Africa. And you know what? That is not okay. There are, of course, renegade products designed for a different kind of world than the wasteful one we've been exploring today, designed by people who want things to be different. The first time I started to feel hopeful about a change to the throwaway culture that comes with mobile phones was when Google began to promote something called Project Aura. Project Aura began as a Motorola mobility project that was absorbed by Google when they acquired Motorola in 2012. Just two years later, Google sold Motorola to Lenovo, but kept the Aura project. Again, kind of a promising sign, especially because that's around when details about Aura began to trickle out. The big idea behind Aura was modularity. Rather than replacing your entire phone whenever part of it breaks, or when something better comes along, you could just replace that one part. Aura designers envisioned a phone that is truly 
the sum of its parts. Multiple devices, not just one device. If you want a better camera, you just swap out the camera module. If you want a new battery, you can swap that out too. Here's a bit of audio from a demonstration of Aura at Google's I.O. conference in 2015. This is the frame. We call it the endo. And these are modules. So the frame is basically the size and shape of a phone as you'd imagine it. But it's got these square and rectangular slots cut out of it. It almost looks like a stack of Tetris blocks if you were looking down at it. And the modules, well, they're the square and rectangular pieces that can be fit into the slots. This is an application processor. I just connected the battery. That's a speaker. And this is another speaker. I want my Ara in stereo today. As a basic concept, this was really cool. It would have made building a phone possible, specifying the options that made the most sense for you, not to mention make maintaining one for longer possible. Let me show you something else. Let's launch the camera. Of course, I know that today I didn't configure a camera, but let's see how easy it is to add new hardware functionality to your device. This is a camera module. I connect it, and it's that simple. The engineer just picked up a rectangular module about the size of a piece of Trident gum, and he slid it into the frame. When he holds the phone up to the audience now, the camera is instantly detected, and we can now see the audience on the phone's screen. There you go. It's a pretty persuasive demonstration and a pretty cool concept. But what's good for consumers isn't necessarily good for companies. The practical reality of the Aura Vision is complicated, like really complicated. And that's why Aura never got off the ground. To make it work, Google would have needed hardware partnerships. And hardware manufacturers just didn't believe in the modular project. It was to their benefit to play ball with the yearly release and update schedule of the big players like Apple or any of the major manufacturers building for Android. If they made a camera, they only had to make one and test it within one device and one software environment. Taking the same hardware to software release cycle and applying it at the modular level would have been much more complicated and probably more importantly to them, much more competitive. In short, going modular as an idea is one thing. Making it a practical reality is entirely another and would require a complete end-to-end change to the industry. That is, unless one company could handle producing the software and the hardware units under one roof. I do know of one company that could do this, but the bulky, cubist, modular look was never going to satisfy a certain chief design officer who obsessed over the subtlety of chamfers. And so... Google canceled Aura in 2016. Now, there are things that are picking up where Aura left off, sort of. You could buy a Fairphone, for example, which is, according to them, the phone that cares for people and planet, as well as swipes and posts. Now, the Fairphone isn't really as modular as the Aura, but it is considering itself to be just as sustainable. Fairphone's agenda is about sustainability of devices as well as sustainability of device making. Fair trade gold, recycled plastics, and maintaining a standard for worker conditions. It's hard to argue with those ideas. Of course, a Fairphone is just not going to be competitive with what Apple or Google produce if you want the fastest phone or the best camera. 
But so what? Does it really need to be? Don't the benefits of modularity and sustainability outweigh the benefits of the latest and greatest? And really, that's not a fair way to evaluate this. If all phones were modular, then no modular phone would be slower or have a less good camera by comparison. If you wanted a faster processor or a better camera, then you could have that. If you didn't need them, you wouldn't have to. So really, don't the cultural and economic imperatives of modularity and sustainability outweigh the economic imperatives of shareholders? Those very few who profit when this year's phone sells more than last year's. It's too easy, though, to blame corporations. For every shareholder are millions of willing participants who buy. So we, too, must accept some culpability, which begs a much more interesting question. Beyond that of blame, of motive, why? Why do we buy? And let's go deeper than that. Why do we desire things? And deeper still, Why do we take pleasure in anticipating desire? Millions of dollars are spent solely on the hype engine, not the advertising or the packaging or anything directly tied to the products we buy, but just the chatter around what the next thing might be and when it might come. Our investment in the liminal spaces between products speaks volumes. And yet I still ask, why is the next thing so hard to resist? In an interview with Mark Marin on his WTF podcast, the film director Danny Boyle, the director of the Steve Jobs biopic, said something interesting about Steve Jobs. I mean, he does say one thing, which is when he holds his hand up effectively to acknowledge that despite all the amazing products that he's made, Mm -hmm. which are perfect, Mm -hmm. as we know, in many ways, he is himself poorly made. So, and that's a beautiful... Despite all the amazing products he's made which are perfect. He is himself poorly made. That is quite the epitaph. In juxtaposing Jobs' humanity, his failings, and frailty with the colossal impact he's had on our culture, Boyle isn't dismissing his achievement or even judging it. Instead, I think, he's cutting to the core of our question of motive. Jobs, even as he approached death, continued to invest his time and withering energy into that very machine which fills our tabs and inboxes with anticipation and analysis, our faces with the cool glow of infinite information, and yes, our landfills with glass, aluminum, and toxic elements. Jobs, whose last words were so reportedly intrepid. Wow. Wow. Wow leaving as any person a complicated legacy which, depending on how you look at it, balances creativity with destruction, endurance with entropy. That is the very tension of embodiment. It's the taut, exposed nerve, the root of all we do with our bodies and suffer with our minds. We yearn for endurance, for commitment and continuity, for things that last, relationships, things, and of course our very selves. Yet our bodies resist with every fiber of their being, not just by craving novelty. As our cells shrink the interval between dopamine hits, first when we taste the new, 
then when we anticipate it, and then when we anticipate the anticipation, but by refusing to last themselves, by dying. Death is the only anticipation to which our bodies will not become addicted. We live in an upgrade culture, but our bodies don't upgrade. You get one, and that's it. A mind aware of its body's destiny is a mind in need of release and vulnerable to seduction. So long as we can imagine something, anything, that comes next, we have hope of perseverance. So why do we consume with such destructive ferocity? Would it be too ironic to conclude that it is simply because we want to live? Because we know of no other way to express that? Perhaps our serial tech monogamy, that endless cycle of upgrades that puts a new phone in our hands nearly every year and fills wish lists and Pinterest boards with countless desirables, is necessary to our being, part of the zeitgeist, the 21st century expression of humanity's travail, minds that can conceive of eternity crying out from bodies that cannot. friends. That's all for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and a review. This particular episode made heavy use of a lot of sounds and clips from many different places. I've linked to all of them in the show notes. Now, whether you directly contribute to the making of the kinds of things that find their way into landfills or float in pieces in the ocean isn't as important as whether you directly contribute to them getting there. And that is something we all do. Immersing ourselves in the reality of the cost of consumption isn't indulging in doom porn if we're willing to consider what we might do in response. Or not do. See, because not doing something might actually be your best contribution. Now, I'd love for anyone listening who can bring sustainability and modularity and generally a slower pace to the development of products like mobile phones to do just that. We all have imaginary heroes out there who we imagine to be working on solutions we know we can't bring ourselves. Mine right now is a material scientist figuring out new ways to make the stuff we use to make the stuff. Stuff that lasts as long as it needs to and gracefully returns to the earth when we're done with it if it is not reborn again as easily as it was first made. But until then, the rest of us can do something pretty simple, like buy fewer phones, find better ways of disposing the things we no longer need, find versions of the things we do need that will last longer and were made in a way we can live with. Just about everything we can buy has a disposable version and a version made to last. The average t-shirt, for instance, is used for just three years. And after that, 85% of them are sent to landfills. What if you took pleasure in making things like that last longer? Now, I'm in no place to moralize on this more than anyone else. 
While I value a well-made thing, and while I would prefer fewer things that last longer, and while I am as concerned by the observable environmental toll of consumption as anyone, I'm just one person. I know I can't change much on my own with the limited access and the limited skills I have. But what I do know is that every small choice I do make to buy or not buy, to preserve or throw away, to extract or to grow, those decisions matter. Because what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. I'll see you then.